truck and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, live and on demand here on The Blaze. I'm Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here along for the ride as well, as are you. 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. I don't know if you guys have noticed there's been a theme this week. I just haven't said anything. It's been superhero shirt week. Yeah, I've seen that. So I've been busting out the uh, superhero greatest hits all week long. So I didn't want to admit that I'd seen that because that's kind of a violation of the dude code. Yeah, that would be a violation of the dude code for you to preemptively say, hey, I noticed what you've been wearing. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. But good self-awareness on your part. In fact, that's that's some dude code props. You got a helmet sticker for some self-awareness there. Well done. Uh, 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. I should make one caveat. The dude code does allow you to preemptively acknowledge what another dude is wearing if he looks like a total clown while wearing it. Okay. Oh, well. If it's to mimic, if it's to mock another yes, dude, that's, then you, I, I would have thought that would have gone without saying. That's a different chapter and a preeminent one. Yes, yes, but we are living in an era where, before we went on the air today, Aaron sent me a tweet from a guy who said that he had to stop, he had to break things off with his dad because his dad was offending him by posting Babylon B satire. We're living in that, in that kind of era, right? So things that previous eras of dudes just kind of knew what didn't have to be said. It need to be clarified. The, so the modern case, version of cats in the cradle really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, Mr. Chapin, which is more like chafidge nowadays. I, I agree. So yeah, if you preemptively notice that another dude looks like a clown, by all means, notice away and publicly and on every single format you have, it'll be for his own good. So he never, ever does that to himself ever again. All in favor. Aye. 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 So with that clarification aside, Aside from mocking another dude's um, self-administered clownage, no, the dude code does not allow you to preemptively notice what another dude is wearing. Unless he brings it up, then you may comment. 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. One of these days we should do a show where we just open up the phone lines for two hours and we just take dude code calls. Yeah. Hey guys. Yep. This is the dilemma. What's the dude code say? We should maybe think about doing that sometime. Uh, You can also like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. We've got a lot going on here today. Um, Theology Thursday is going to start a little earlier this week. We've got a powerful story to share with you with a guest uh, that's going to be here with us at the bottom of this hour. Because you're being told people like him don't exist. And we're going to let you hear his story here at the bottom of the hour. And then we're going to talk about that and some of the ramifications of stories like that. Uh, both as a culture, uh, you know, comprehensively, but also um, <clears throat> as a movement, as conservatives, trying to have a, a positive impact on conserving a culture worthy of uh, fighting for. So we're going to get to that. We'll have, we'll have some fun with three non-political questions. But before we get to all of that, we must begin with Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away? <laughs> Brought to you by Democrat Debate Number 2, Part 2. I don't know what's happened. I wrote the Violence Against Women Act, Lily Ledbetter. I was deeply involved in making sure there the equal pay amendments. I was deeply involved in all these things. I came up with the It's On Us proposal to see to it that women were treated more decently on college campuses. You came to Syracuse University with me and said it was wonderful. I'm passionate about the concern making sure women are treated equally. I don't know what's happened except that 
you're now running for president. So I understand, <laughs> Mr. Vice President. The last four years have been the four warmest years in recorded history. This is going to be a tough truth, but we are too late. We are 10 years too late. We need to do everything we can to start moving the climate in the right direction, but we also need to start moving our people to higher ground. I have the only plan that limits the ability of insurance companies to charge unreasonable prices, flat out, number one. Number two, we should put some of these insurance executives who totally oppose my plan in jail for the nine billion opioids they sell out there. They are misrepresenting the American people what need to be done. I don't believe that it's the responsibility of Corey and Kamala to be the only voice that takes on these issues of institutional racism, systemic racism in our country. I think as a white woman of privilege who is a U.S. senator running for president of the United States, it is also my responsibility to lift over those voices that aren't being listened to. And I can talk to those white women in the suburbs that voted for Trump and explain to them what white privilege actually is. You should be able to, if you cross the border illegally, you should be able to be sent back. It's a crime. It's a crime. And it's not one that, in fact... Thank, thank you, Mr. Vice President. Secretary Castro, please yeah, respond. Uh, first of all, Mr. Vice President, it looks like one of us has learned the lessons of the past and one of us hasn't. There's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, you, need to, you need to come to the city of Newark and see the reforms that we put in place. The New Jersey head of the ACLU has said that I embraced reforms, not just in action, but in deed. Sir? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. The fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is that there will be a deductible. It will be a deductible on her paycheck. Bernie acknowledges it. Bernie acknowledges it. Three for thirty trillion dollars has to ultimately be paid, and I don't know what math you do in New York. I don't know what math you do anywhere in California, but I tell you, that's a lot of money, and there will be a deductible. The deductible will be out of your paycheck. The most Googled person once again was Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard. In other news, footage emerged yesterday of Congressman Elijah Cummings talking about his home district of West Baltimore. Listen for yourself. This morning, I left my community of Baltimore, a drug-infested area, where a lot of the drugs that we're talking about today have already taken the lives of so many children. The same children that I watched 14 or 15 years ago as they grew up, now walking around like zombies. This is only 40 miles away from here. Drug-infested? Checking in on Marianne Williamson. But because, as a friend of mine said, Americans want to 
put mustard on their hot dog if they want to put mustard on their hot dog. Now, I know that my very progressive friends... Are you going like, to give people the, uh, the option to put mustard on the hot dog? Well, that's, what, that's keeping, what you're figuring out. Well, that's what I'm figuring out. And now this. Yesterday, I made a mistake when telling you about the story of the artist formerly known as Bruce Jenner wanting to become a mom with his girlfriend. The problem is he doesn't actually have a girlfriend. He has a friend who is also another dude who is pretending to be a lady who is pretending to be attracted to another lady who is pretending to, is actually a dude who is pretending to be a lady, Caitlin, who is also pretending to be attracted to another lady, uh, his boyfriend, who is also a dude. Um, Consider the story corrected. And now learning Spanish today. Today's phrase is, how the hell am I supposed to keep up with this tranny bull? ¿Cómo demonios se supone que debo seguir con esta mierda transgénero? Speaking of, here's this. Not only women experience periods, trans guys can experience periods and non-binary people can as well. I had a visit from an incredibly very unwelcome guest. I basically got my period for the first time in like nearly four years. My name is Jamie Rains and I'm a trans guy who's been on testosterone for a little over seven years now. And I'm here today to talk to you about what it's like to experience periods as a trans guy. Parenting expert Jane Evans went on the British talk show this morning to talk about why grandparents should be asking their grandchildren for consent before hugging them. They have to ask permission, yes. And, you know, it's kind, it sounds big and clunky, but it should just be a part of daily life. You know, if I met you, well, we did meet in the green room, both of us, and I wouldn't just launch into a hug. Are we going to get to a stage where parents are going to have to ask permission to say, can I change your nappy now? Can I yes. get your pants on? Am but I allowed to kiss it's you? Not a, it sounds like a big deal because we were all making it a big deal. And finally, the heroine we don't deserve, but the one we need right now. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's montage today brought to you by our friends at creditrepair.com. A low credit score can keep you from getting some of the finer things you'd like in life, like a house, a car, maybe even a job, as more and more employers are checking credit scores these days. That's not all. Even if you do get approved, you'll get stuck with the higher interest rates than those who have the better credit scores. If you want to do something about this, uh, just call the specialists at creditrepair.com. They can help you work to repair your credit and improve your score by removing inaccurate negative items like late payments, charge-offs, even collections and bankruptcies. Here's the number for your free credit evaluation at 800-501-3199. That's 1-800-501-3199. Now, when you call, you'll get a free credit report and score, and you'll find out what creditrepair.com can do to help you improve it. Again, uh, that's 800-501-3199. Not available in Georgia, Mississippi, Ohio, and South Carolina, but for everybody else, 800-501-3199 to get your free credit report and evaluation, or you can just go to creditrepair.com. That's creditrepair.com. All right, so gentlemen, we're through two rounds of the first two Democratic debates. And, and I've, got a, I've got some big picture takeaways. And we're going to take these one by one, and you guys can agree, disagree, uh, add, subtract as, as you would like. Okay, 
Um, and these are things that I posted sort of at the end last night and then also first thing this morning when I had some time to kind of ruminate on it and, and see some other people's opinions. I want to start with this. Uh, this is a notion I'm struggling with how to reconcile this. Because if when I when I saw a lot of takes in, in conservative media last night when this was over, I, I thought Joe Biden got destroyed. Me too. I, I mean, I, I mean, destroyed. When your only win is, is Kirsten Gillibrand, the, the most pathetic rat on that stage, and it comes with like four minutes to go, it was not a good night for you. And, and this is a format that if you're running his campaign, this is what you wanted. You wanted as many of these debates with a crowded field so you could hide out, pick your spots, kind of let the kids, you know, uh, snipe at each other, snip at each other and avoid as because what, here's what Joe Biden's trying to avoid. Let me give you a specific example. He's trying to avoid the moment. Like, well, on the race, what Kamala Harris did to him in the first debate. But he's trying to avoid Elizabeth Warren. I almost said Elizabeth Sanders, Freudian slip. Uh, he's trying to avoid the moment when, they're all t- when the frontrunners are on the stage together. And he has to engage them now directly. And he says what he says about Bernie Sanders' health care plan, and, or, which is the same plan basically Elizabeth Warren has. And either Elizabeth, Bernie Sanders, especially though Elizabeth Warren, he really doesn't want Elizabeth Warren to say this because she represents the softer side of Sears. She's the Trotsky to, uh, to, to the Lenin, Stalin, harder edge of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a Sanders. He's trying to avoid the moment where he says your plans don't add up. And one of them says to him on a stage, well, maybe if you would not have voted for all these damn wars this, these last 20 years, we could have provided health care to our people. That's the kind of moment he's trying to avoid. Because that's the kind of moment you ever wondered what it would look like if you saw an 80-year-old man's T-level just drop in real time in full makeup. That, you'll, you'll see it. He, he's trying to, and he needs to build up as big of a cushion and a lead as he can before he has to expose himself directly to this, the leftist left wing of his party. This format he should be excelling in. He's the most experienced player on the stage. He's surrounded by people that are largely unknown. Um, he should be very deft at picking and choosing his spots. And I actually thought this debate was even worse than the first one. But what I'm seeing from conservative media is on one hand, we are claiming that he was bludgeoned in this debate last night. And then on the other hand, though, many of our same people are claiming, but he's the presumed front runner. He's going to be the nominee. This is pointless. The reason I'm struggling with this point is, is he can only be a fait accompli nominee, in my mind, after these two abysmal performances. The only way that could be true, yes, the polls show a good portion of his perceived lead are black voters. Blacks, black Americans don't watch CNN and MSNBC. They don't watch those shows. White, white leftists watch that stuff. And so much of the, the African-American base of the Democratic Party is not even really engaged fully at this point. But that would also mean, therefore, there is a, there, that there's a, a substantial amount of white voters remaining in the Democratic Party that view him. And, and by, by the way, in case you're wondering, why does he have a huge lead among black voters? Because they just know him as the vice president for Barack Obama. That would then also have to mean, though, there's a substantial amount of white voters in the Democratic Party who don't care that he's up there saying, I want to cancel fracking and and the coal industry and automobiles have to go. That's all stuff he said last night, actually. The kind of stuff that isn't going to win you any of the states you've got to win back. 
they're literally saying he just ha- they're thinking to themselves he just has to stay say this stuff to get past these crazies in our party but in the end he's going to be uncle joe and he's the guy that can beat trump if there's a substantial amount of white voters in that party who believe that and are projecting him as the last you know agent of sanity remaining that could be their nominee then this is not as comprehensively communist as a party as we are selling many of you both of these things in my view cannot be true because because he's been an abysmal candidate in my view in these two debates far worse than i would have ever guessed he could have possibly performed um so if you think yeah he got bludgeoned but but he's also going to be the nominee so it doesn't matter well then you're uh, uh, you have to be saying then that there's a substantial group of people still within the Democratic Party that want to push back against the woke Olympics. And, and then we must be overestimating how comprehensively communist they have become. Can you guys reconcile this for me? Because I can't figure both of these things being true out. It's definitely communist. Go ahead, Aaron. Well, yeah, I just I can't. You remember yesterday when we had the uh, data from MSNBC that they used after the uh, first debate a couple of days ago where they're talking about the Democrats' opinions and all of these issues that they talked about in the debate and then illustrating how far out of the mainstream the Democrat voters are compared with the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you can square that with the notion that there is some uh, irreconcilable, inexorable base of the Democratic Party that is just going to vote for Joe Biden no matter what, with the motivation being they know he can be Trump. I mean, I, I agree with you. That's why I think Joe Biden is toast. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't, I, my math yeah. adds up. Yeah. Okay. I look at those numbers and say that then the guy's performing abysmally. He's toast. Cause I also don't buy, well, they think he can beat Trump. You think the guy that has been on those stages for the last two, who dude, dude is getting pistol whipped by Julian Castro. Yes. All yes. right. Dude yeah. is getting pile driven by Cory Booker. You think that guy is going to stand up mano y mano for 90 minutes, three times? With the with the whole heat on with it with and he's another year and a half older after 450 more days of campaigning. You think that's the guy that's going right. to stand up for three for three attempt for three attempts for an hour and a half mano a mano with Donald Trump. I don't see that at all. So I don't buy that argument. So if you believe he got bludgeoned, you can't then also, in my view, believe it's a fait accompli. He's the nominee because you then must still believe that there's a sizable base within the Democratic Party trying to push back on these leftists. I don't believe that, which is why I don't see how you can justify both of those positions. I the way I know, I think it happens. And of course, I, I thought Biden was finished before the debates happened because of the. Uh, first kind of crazy we're talking about the leftist crazy but there's another kind of crazy that's pervasive and it's just their their obsession with trump it that's a different kind of crazy and it's not not because they're being logical about it but because it's such a fetish that's the thing that makes it seem like they might be pulling back from leftism when it's just another obsession there's two competing versions of crazy going on Mm mm-hmm and and that's hard for even people on the right are confused by that. They're not the same. They're not exactly the same thing. Okay. I mean, they're just. So the, you notice you guys are noticing the same discrepancy in that, oh, yeah. in that analysis. Yes. OK, because I don't agree with it. I don't agree with either end of it. I don't believe he's a fait accompli and I don't believe there is a sizable chunk yeah. of Democrats pushing well, back against this. I don't believe either one of those things. But it seems to me if you believe he is a fait accompli, though, that you still must believe that. And the reason why I think this is an important point, because many of the people that I saw in my feed last night 
what, trying to make both of these things true are the ones selling you this clickbait on leftist Democrats gone gone wild all the time. Yeah. Well, then do you even believe your own clickbait then? If you if you believe Joe Biden has tiptoed between the raindrops in these two last debates and is still a fait accompli, you've watched two different debates than, than I, certainly I have. Well, that's why we didn't talk that much. But before the show, we agreed this is the most schizophrenic debate analysis we've ever seen. I agree. I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, people, yeah. all the Rorschach blot tests were just like, really? You saw? And you know what? To be fair to some of those people, it could be that they're trying to reconcile what they see in polls with what their eyes oh. are actually seeing on these stages, and they can't get it to add up, and so they're just going with that. I, I think know. it's we're we're actually trying to figure out chaos. That's not easy. That's a, that can be uh, difficult too. Yeah. All right. Here's the second point I want us to address. All right. I, I remain convinced. I said this after the first debate, after what she did to Joe Biden. I don't think she's as hurt by what happened with Tulsi Gabbard as most people think because totally Tulsi agree. Gabbard's a 1% candidate. Yep. Smoking hot. Like the most smoking hot 1% candidate we've ever had. And she should be larger than higher than 1% after this. I don't know how high, but should be. One and a half, two, okay? But Tulsi Gabbard's irrelevant in this process. So um, if you're Kamala Harris, you don't care what someone who's irrelevant says about you. And, and you want to just change the subject and not address her. The last thing Kamala Harris wants to do is get into a 10-minute exchange with Tulsi Gabbard on a split screen. That's what Tulsi Gabbard wants. She's trying to provoke her in. If you're a Kamala Harris, you just let her punch herself out and move on and get back and, and pile drive in Joe yeah. Biden again. So I actually thought she handled that given how poor the— how, how poor the material is of a look for her. I actually thought she yep. handled it about as well as she could. But I believe she still remains their best candidate. You know why? Because I think she is the only one who is soulless enough, shameless enough, craven enough to stand up on a stage the exact opposite of Biden. And, and I, think she, I think we have no idea what triangulation she will do. Totally agree. She is flipping on her health care answers five times yep. within the same answer. Yeah. And, then, and then there's another factor here, and I haven't put this out on Twitter yet. I'll just share this with you. I think I have finally cracked the code as to why Trump is obsessed with, hey, I'm letting criminals out even more than Kamala Harris did. You saw that on Twitter last night. Here's what I think the issue is. The, the black turnout in presidential elections for Democrats the last couple of decades has averaged about 11 percent. And it was it was above it was approaching about 13 percent or a little more in the Obama years. That two percent doesn't seem like a huge spike to you. But it could be like 50,000 votes in a place like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where Trump won. It could be like 37,000 votes in a place like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. These are all places, remember, Trump won these three states by a combined less than 78,000 votes. And Hillary left that portion of her base at home. I've done the math for you. About 90% of Trump's, uh, I think it's 87% is the exact number, of Trump's margin of victory in, in Wisconsin in 2016 are the 20-some-odd thousand black voters in Milwaukee County that didn't vote in 2016, that voted in, uh, in 2012 and 2008 for Obama. So I think they're scared to death that all this Trump is a racist stuff in the mainstream media is going to spike black voter turnout to about what it was in the Obama years. And then they think the math will work against them. I think that's what, why they're trying to get to the left of Democrats like Kamala Harris on criminal justice. If I'm right about that, well, then, then I'm, I'm nominating a black woman to that would be their strongest case, particularly one who's just as shameless as Donald Trump, yep. who will say any lie, spin any web. And there, there's nothing she will not do to win. Nothing. 
So I think she remains their strongest candidate. Your, your thoughts, gentlemen. Well, furthermore, if it, people are just need to pull back a little bit, then this is a social media effect going back to Pat Fitzgerald and what it does to people. You just so giddy to get the hot take. Pull back. If you if you're any candidate, Republican or Democrat, polling at five percent before any of the debates start, and after the first two debates, you are known for a defeating the vice president of what many people believe is the most popular president in all of American history, Barack Obama, as we just learned from current college uh, uh, students. And secondly, after the second debate, from the opening gun, you are clearly on that same stage with that vice president, and you are viewed as the frontrunner in terms of how everybody is coming after you. Would you not take that? And if, if anybody is saying no... You're just being absolutely dishonest. She is clearly a winner after these first two debates by any objective standard. Meaning that comprehensively she has raised her stature in the race. absolutely. what more could you have asked for if you were in her shoes before this started, right? Right. Aaron, your thoughts? Yeah, gangsters, groupies, and crusaders. Uh, I don't know if I got that in the right order, but that's kind of what we're looking at right now. There are very few gangsters or uh, true crusaders, actually, up on that stage. I think Bernie Sanders might might still be a crusader. I don't know. Maybe Elizabeth Warren is closer to a crusader. But Kamala Harris, though, is is a gangster. She is willing to wheel gangsta, and deal. Gangsta, gangsta. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's yeah. her. Yep. yep. Um, I agree. She, she is a gangster. She's willing to wheel and deal and cut any... Uh, corners or cut any deal to get her where she thinks she needs to go. The rest of the pe- most of the people up on the stages the last few nights have just been groupies. Not groupies for uh, a person, though. They're groupies towards the cult of progressivism. Yeah, pandercrats. Pandercrats. That's yeah. exactly right. That's that's why I think really the only two people at this point, and I told I I, I told this to, to Chris Pandolfo right now uh, last night uh, from uh, Blaze Media. I think the only two people. Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. I think Elizabeth Warren has succinctly uh, cut into De- uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, base, maybe enough, or at least into his lead, what lead that he had, uh, to the point where she is now seen as Grandma Elizabeth instead of uh, Bernie Sanders waving and yelling his arms all the time. So I think, at least with that portion of the Democratic Party, she has got she she has got a ch- chance with that, and then Kamala Harris is the only other person I see at this point with the chance of winning the dom- nomination because of what I just said about her being a gangster. She is the only person up there who's actually running some semblance of a normal campaign. A normal campaign meaning uh, we're going to triangulate and actually have some semblance of a strategy beyond how fast can we go, uh, you know, uh, sprinting towards Gamora here. I've got one more bullet point I wanted to get to, but we're going to be short on time, so we're going to save it for the next hour and we'll reset this, okay? But um, I think your analysis of what Elizabeth Warren has accomplished is spot on. And I think she's done it with a huge helping hand from their cable news networks who clearly are out to destroy Bernie Sanders uh, and don't want any part of him. They don't think he's electable, uh, don't like him. He's also not, you know, been a partisan Democrat most of his career. He's an independent uh, who is who caucuses with them when it's convenient for him. So he's a bit of a carpetbagger as well. And I think they view Elizabeth Warren. I think they see Bernie Sanders with the flailing arms. He's your he's a Soviet. And I think they see that. I think they see that that packaging cannot win. And so they're looking for the softer side of Sears. If you, if you know your Marxist history, they're looking, they see Elizabeth Warren, in my view, they, they like her, not just because she's female, she has the right plumbing, but they also see her as the Trotsky here. 
um, meaning that she's the softer side of Sears, that, that she, is, she has more of an academic approach to this, less, more, less than your classic uh, fist-in-the-air Che Guevarian uh, approach to it that a Bernie Sanders has. And so they see her as we can get all of the same things that Bernie has stirred up a portion of our base about. But we can get it in a packaging that we find more amenable, traditionally democratic, that won't turn off maybe some of our core constituencies that we need to turn out in order to win a general election. And I think that's ultimately what has done Bernie in, is that, is that their media has done to him what Fox did to Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich in 2012 or Ted Cruz in, in 2016. Uh, their media has, 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 has declared judgment on him. Uh, they want him out. And, and so they're pumping the hell out of her as a replacement for him. What do you think, Todd? Well, I agree with that, but I don't think it's a, a fait accompli in terms of, uh, well, because of what we saw with Donald Trump. Uh, this stuff can be too smart by half. Bernie rose to the challenge this last debate. I mean, that, that, if there's anybody who's not buying uh, green bananas, it's Bernie Sanders. I mean, he'll... He'll be ruthless in in taking this from them, and if if he has to uh, try to, uh, he'll have no problem trying to turn Warren into a joke again. And and it's not that it, that can't be done; it can be done quite easily. So I think you're right. I just don't think there's any guarantee it's going to work. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know that it will work either. But he's now fighting against their entire yeah. liberal media oh, yeah. industrial complex. Now that if he can pull that thing off, that's formidable, no doubt about it. We're going to tell a powerful story with our guest for Theology Thursday when we come back here in just a few few minutes. Live and on demand on The Blaze. Stay tuned. Hey, if you're going all in right now on what is a booming real estate market, you know, before you do that, maybe your neighborhood or the neighborhood you're looking at looks a little bit like mine right now, which is we've got a cornucopia of different uh, real estate agent uh, and yard signs up in our neighborhood right now, including from some companies we've never seen before. So are they reputable? Are they uh, opportunists uh, trying to take advantage of a booming market? How do you know you have a real estate agent that you can trust? Well, you would know if you use the website, realestateagentsitrust.com. And and this is a company Glenn Beck and some of his associates started several years ago because they too had run in uh, with agents who talked a good game beforehand, but then didn't deliver the results that they promised when they were needed the most. So you're looking for an agent that is worthy of you. That's what sets this apart from other referral services that are really about finding clients for agents. You're looking for an agent with a successful track record, someone who's got a marketing plan beyond uh, the algorithm says, or let's do another open house. And then somebody who is is, is good to work with, personable, you have a rapport with, because it's a very personal process uh, doing this with you and your agent. If you want one that checks all of those boxes, then you're looking for a real estate agent that you can trust, and you're only going to find them on the website realestateagentsitrust.com that's realestateagentsitrust.com let's get to theology thursday and you know it's 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 been a while since i've had the opportunity uh, to have someone share this kind of story with our audience we we have done several of these sorts of incredible stories in the past but um, now i think is especially important 
given the battles we're having over gender, um, where we're living in a society right now where um, a gentleman finishes 290th place in the NCAA track and field championships last year, gets hormone treatments to become a woman, and then wins the very next year against women that he still is physically superior to. And it's not as if the confusion on this issue has not has subsided whatsoever. So I think it's, it's, it's a good opportunity for our show to, again, share the story of the kind of person most of our culture pretends does not exist. His name is uh, Beckett Cook. He joins us now, and his new book is A Change of Affection, a gay man's incredible story of redemption. And he's with us here today on Blaze TV radio and podcast. And Beckett, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us, brother. How are you? Great, Steve. Thank you for having me. Let's just start with the very basics of your story. Who is Beckett Cook? Beckett Cook is someone who I, I've lived in Hollywood for 20 years, maybe 25 years, actually, in Los Angeles. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and at a very early age, I felt a sense of same-sex attraction. And over the years, that same-sex attraction developed more and more into my identity. So by the time I was, I graduated from college, it was fully my identity. It was who I was, and I felt like it was completely immutable. And I, you know, I met my first boyfriend after college, and that was when I came out to everyone, my family, my friends, the whole world. I came out, and I moved to, I moved to LA, and, uh, and I had an amazing life in LA. I was a set designer. Um, and I, I had this group of friends all from the East Coast from, from Ivy League schools that were super smart, super ambitious, successful, driven, and we had the best time. I mean, we went to premieres, the Oscars, Emmys, Golden Globes. We, I went to fashion weeks in Paris and New York all the time. Um, and so I, I lived this kind of amazing life in Hollywood and met everyone, literally met everyone, <laughs> did everything, <laughs> went to all the parties, uh, you know, got all the gift bags. And, um, and then at, in 2009, I was in Paris at Fashion Week and I, I went to this after party for Stella McCartney's uh, runway show. And I went to the after party at a club that night and I had this, and everyone was there and it was like, people dancing and drinking champagne and having the, the time of their lives. And I had this overwhelming moment of just utter emptiness. And I felt like, wow, this, this isn't doing it for me anymore. This, this whole life isn't doing it for me. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? And I went, I went back to my uh, part of the apartment I had rented in Paris that night and was up all night, just kind of freaking out about my life. And um, I got back to LA and then got back busy with work again. And then six months later, as God would have it, uh, I was at a coffee shop in LA and I was with my best friend who was gay too. And sitting next to us was a group of young people with Bibles on their table in Silver Lake, which is like a super progressive part of LA. I mean, so they're sticking out. Yeah. So it's the first time in my life I'd ever seen Bibles in public in Los Angeles. You got a chance to observe these species in their natural habitat for the first time out in the wild, right? 
Yes. Yeah, it was it was crazy to see. And not not only did they have Bibles, but at a certain point they bowed their heads and started praying, which was even more bizarre. So my friend urged me to to kind of engage in conversation with them because he kind of liked to stir things up like that. And so I tried, you know, after they finished praying, I turned around and I said, "Hey, uh, what's the deal? Are you guys like Christians or something?" And we ended up in this conversation for a couple of hours and it was, uh, and they answered, you know, they, we, they told, they explained what I, I literally said, what's the gospel? I don't even know. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic schools my whole life. I don't really even remember what the gospel is because as I was growing up and as I was more and more identifying as gay, God was like completely out of the picture. That wasn't even an option for me. I saw Christians as the enemy and I thought, I can never be a part of that club because they believe who I am is wrong. So I, that's, off, that's off the table. And so I felt like God was not even an option for me, ever. So I, I, at that point in my life, when, when in 2009, I was, I was a, uh, practically an atheist. So they explained the gospel to me, and then they invited me to their church in Hollywood the following Sunday. And I said, well, what does your church believe about homosexuality you know I got to the $64,000 question and they were just very honest and said well you know we believe it's a sin and blah 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 and I was like huh and I found that like really refreshing that they didn't try to like beat around the bush or that they were just very honest and open about it and I said well I don't know if I'm going to come to your church next weekend but you know I'll think about it and so I had a whole week to think about it and the next Sunday Somehow I woke up, got in my car, drove to Hollywood to our, the church is in a public high school auditorium in Hollywood. And I walked into this, I had never been into an evangelical church in my life. And I had walked in I, and there was worship music playing. And I, my first reaction was, oh my gosh, I forgot Christian music was a thing. And, and I kind of cringed, but then I was like, no, it's actually good. And then I sat down the pastor came out, preached on Romans chapter seven for an hour. I was absolutely riveted by the sermon. I couldn't, everything he was saying was like resonating as truth in my mind, in my heart. And by the end of the sermon, I was on the edge of my seat. I, I didn't want him to leave the stage. I was like, no, keep talking. I want to hear. And so the sermon ends and then there's worship music playing again for another 30 minutes. And this guy, this guy on the prayer ministry at that church prayed for me. And I went back to my seat. And then that's when all of a sudden I was just sitting there and the Holy Spirit was like, Whoa! and God revealed himself to me. And I, I knew in that moment, I knew God was real. Jesus was real. Heaven was real. Hell was real. The Bible was true everything like it in a split second and i was bawling and bawling and bawling and i couldn't stop crying for 20 the rest of the service 25 minutes and i was i was crying so hard that people around me were actually concerned about me and i was crying because i had just met the king of the universe and be, over the, i was crying because of my sin it was kind of like isaiah when he's in the temple and he sees the holiness of god and he just he comes undone that mm. that's what happened to me and I knew, and then I was just like overwhelmed. And I got in my car after the service, went home, 
got in bed to take a nap and it happened again. I, I was in bed and <laughs> it was like Moses in the cleft of the rock. God's like, let me show you a little more of my glory. <laughs> and I just was like, whoa. And I jumped out of my bed and that's when I was like, God, you have my whole life. I'm done. It's yours. That's it. And I knew, I knew in that moment, I knew to the core of my being that being like living as a gay man was no longer an option. And I didn't care because I, I had this like incredible relationship with the king of the universe now. So I didn't care about letting that go because, uh, but I knew, I knew for sure that it was not who God created me to be. And, and I knew it wasn't, um, I knew it was no longer part of my life. Who, who is, who's Beckett Cook now? Who's he been? What is he? Who is he 10 years later? Well, <laughs> so I, uh, I, the same, I mean, I, I went to, in the me in the last 10 years, I went to seminary at Talbot, uh, which is in, in, at Biola University in Los Angeles. And I went to seminary for four years and I wrote this book because I really felt like I wanted the story to get out because the, it's such a different narrative from the cultural narrative that's going on. I mean, it's like the culture is constantly telling us we have to celebrate all of this. And, and, um, and so I just, now I, you know, I live, I've been living as a single celibate man, uh, since that and since that time. And I, I'm, I never feel like I'm being cheated out of something or that it's life is unfair because not only do I have the best relate because people ask me that all the time. They're like, well, isn't it unfair that you have to be single for the rest of your life? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not single. I mean, I have this most incredible relationship with Jesus Christ and it's so all consuming and fulfilling that I don't, I, all my, first of all, all my boyfriend, ex-boyfriends cheated on me. They lied to me. And Jesus is always faithful. He never lies, he, you know. And so it's the best relationship I've ever been in. And so I never feel like I'm missing out on something or being cheated out of something. And even Paul in, in his letter to the Corinthian church says that, you know, he, he says that it's better to be single. He wishes people could be single like he is. And because it, you can devote all of your time to ministry. And mm -hmm. and uh, I that's how I feel. I, I feel. I feel like... You know, I don't. I don't believe in luck, but I feel like the luckiest guy in the world because I bet I know I have this relationship with God now through Christ, and I, uh, I get to you know I get to spread the good news. I mean that's and that, and I have eternal. By the way, I have eternal life, which is kind of a big deal. You know, <laughs> kind of amazing. Um, it's a thing. But, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're gonna post this on all of our social this conversation later today. And it's been a few years since I've interviewed someone who's had a life change like you, but I've, I've, I've done several of these in my career. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You, you know, because I'm sure you've experienced this far more than I have, because it's your story. So you have to live with this every single day. But when I, when we post this on all of our social, I'm going to be going to be inundated with, with, with social media mobs are going to be uh, adamant that you were never actually really gay. Right. Oh, that your your gay credentials aren't you, you know you're you're some kind of you know Uncle Tom gay well you weren't really gay gay 
Okay. I mean, I've interviewed Michael Glatz, who was on the cover of Time Magazine's Gay Youth in America, uh, you know, pioneering story back in the 90s. Uh, I've interviewed a woman named Charlene Cothran, who used to run the the largest black lesbian publication in America, who had a faith conversion like this and left lesbianism behind. And, and, and it doesn't matter... How gay these people used to claim they were, I will be inundated with they were never really gay. I'm sure you have been confronted with this as you've started to share what's happened in your life. How do you respond to that, Beckett? Well, I, first of all, I lived as a gay, I I mean, I I was gay since I was a kid and I uh, had five serious relationships with five different guys and, uh, and so, and also, um, I, my whole world was gay. Like my friends were gay. I marched in, um, I marched in rallies for, uh, gay marriage legalization. I marched in, I mean, I went to gay prides all the time in San Francisco, LA, New York. Um, I was, I was, that was my, those were my people. I was part of that culture. And it, it honestly, it, and by the way, I mean, it doesn't get any gayer than this. I used to go, ha- I used to have cocktails at Ariana Huffington's house. So like, I mean, I won't ask again. You, you've made your point. No, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. It was a funny joke. I liked it. That was good. Yes. That was good. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, that certainly it, beats Archie Bunker's. Some, one of, some of my best friends are, friends are black. It, it definitely comes over the top rope on that one. I, I agree. That's a good one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, that that question, I mean, that comment always stuns me because it's like, I mean, I lived such a gay, I mean, I, I not only had so many boyfriends, but I also, you know, had so many kind of romantic interactions and in, throughout my life with other guys. And so it's, it's and, and again, it's, I, and I'm not like, quote unquote, straight now, I still... I still struggle with same-sex attraction, but I'm happy to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Christ. Like, it's not, it's not like I magically became straight that day. Um, which God can, I mean, God created the universe, like that could happen, but it didn't happen to me. And I don't, I don't care. Like, if God wants to do that, that's fine. If He doesn't, that's fine. I'm happy to just live as a single man and just be on mission for the kingdom of God. That's all I care about. I mean, Paul was single. Jesus was single. Like, you know, it's like, whatever. What, what's, your, what's happened to your professional career since this transformation? Well, we don't know yet. Um, I, so I'm a, I'm a set designer in Hollywood, and uh, it's strange because I, I feel like with this interview, I feel like the book just came out two days ago, and, uh, or yesterday, I think. But um, I feel like that career because i you know i work with the top photographers in the world i mean they just they just told mario lopez yesterday that um he was he was crazy for for questioning whether parents should let their toddlers choose their own gender right i mean that's the world that you that you have spent your entire professional life in is in that world so that's why i asked i feel like i'm going to be persona non grata like today because i you know, I worked in the last 20 years, I've worked with gay photographers, lesbian photographers, like the biggest ones in the world. And I worked with every, I worked with everyone, with Katy Perry and all, all these people, um, Meryl Streep, and I've worked with everyone in Hollywood and, uh, and Oprah. And it's like, 
now that this book is out, because I've always been very open about my faith mm -hmm. on the set with people, but the book is kind of a, it's kind of a game changer because it's like, okay, like you actually are putting this in writing. That's a little too much for us. So I feel like this is, um, my career as a set designer is probably going to end today or like, you know, very soon. And, but that's fine because I know that I feel like God is calling me into kind of full-time ministry through this book, through, through, because of seminary, he, he, he called me to seminary. So I feel like he's leading me out of the whole production design world and into ministry, full-time ministry. I've only got about a minute and a half left. What do you want to say to quote unquote conservative America about the experience you had that transformed your life, the way you were ministered to that would help us to be better in, in how we minister to those that were where you used to be. Oh, I'll just tell a quick story of my sister-in-law. She is, she's a Christian, evangelical Christian. She lives in Dallas, Texas, and her name is Kim. She, for all those years that I was living as a gay man, she never condemned me. She never judged me. She knew that I knew that she believed it was a sin. Uh, but all she did was love me unconditionally. And, and then she did a second thing that was much more dangerous than that. She prayed for me mm. for 20 years. And so that, like that unconditional love, and, and I, I never felt condemned or judged by her ever. And I just felt loved by her and she prayed for me. And that's it. Beckett, I'm up against a hard break. Do you have a few minutes to hang yeah. with us? Okay. Yeah. We want to talk some more to you. We're going to do that with Beckett Cook author of the new book, A Change of Affection, when we come back here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. Stay tuned. And we're back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. I'm Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. 888-900-3393 is the number. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the program. That's D-E-A-C-E. -E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. If you are one of the millions of Americans right now that have just come to the conclusion, you're going to have to live with chronic pain in your body. That may not be the case anymore. What's causing that chronic chronic pain, and I just want to say, I'm not talking about an injury, right? But chronic pain is something else, and it's because of inflammation is built up in the body. Now, your bodies were made to push back against inflammation, but it's it's kind of a lost art in our day and age, and that's where Relief Factor comes in. It's, it's physician-created, even though it's 100% drug-free, and what that tells you is that doctors got together and got tired of prescribing drugs to treat symptoms. They, they wanted to come up with a natural formula that would unleash the body's God-given ability to push back against inflammation, and that's what Relief Factor does with its four key natural ingredients. I am a big believer in this product. Before I came to The Blaze, I used to appear on shows as a guest and I'd hear the host raving about it. I'm like, is it really that good? Yeah. I mean, my recovery time post-workouts, the soreness when I get up in the morning, so many of that those symptoms of chronic pain from inflammation have been severely diminished, if not outright eliminated, all right? So I would recommend this highly, which is why I'm recommending that you give the starter kit a try. It's a dollar a day for three weeks to see if you get some relief. What do you got to lose for 20 bucks? I think maybe 
hopefully finally the pain go to relieffactor.com if you want to try that three-week starter kit relieffactor.com and we're back here on theology thursday with our guest this week beckett cook has a brand new book out it just came out this week a change of affection and he's a hollywood set designer fashion designer he's been with us telling his incredible story of the transformation that's gone on in his life and i i now that we've heard your story, I want to get to some practical advice that you can give the other side of the culture on this, Beckett. Because what I hear you say, telling us that really had the impact on you is that the truth was never hidden from you. No one pandered. You weren't. You weren't moved by pandering. Um, you weren't necessarily. A, you weren't. You weren't condemned, but you were neither affirmed. You were accommodated. You were. You were treated like a, cre- a creature made in the image of God, every bit as much as those who are not estranged from Him at that point in time. But when when you asked for the truth, it was not denied. It was given to you. But you also weren't. You know, sent to a. a, a you know, a, a, the culture version of a ghetto or a leper colony for your particular, uh, you know, uh, sinful persuasion. Is, is that kind of the balance that, that, that really had an impact on you that you were describing to our audience? Yes. I mean, I, yeah, I wasn't sent to the gulag uh, for being gay, but um, I, and my family, you know, my parents were actually, I mean, I'm the youngest of eight kids. So by the time they got to me, it, they were, they had been through a lot, so but they were so lovely to me uh, when I did come out to them. Not they, they didn't, and my parents are Christians, and they didn't affirm it, but they they didn't like kick me out of the house or you know um, they weren't super angry or upset. Uh, my mother was uh, sad, but yeah, the culture, um, the culture, especially when I moved to Los Angeles the culture really embraced me because in LA, you know, or New York, wherever you, you can really be who you are mm-hmm. uh, and, ex- and explore that, you know, identity in a, in a kind of a more, uh, a more severe, not severe way, but in a more intense way. And so um, I never felt, yeah, I never felt, uh, judged by society. Um, I, I didn't really, uh, I didn't really care what at that, during all those years, I didn't really care what society thought of me. Um, I just, because obviously I was living in one of the most kind of liberal towns in the, in the world. And so it, I always felt very welcomed and, and, uh, so it was, yeah, it was good. When I hear you saying, is that this is really a question of identity, really. And that yeah. the reason that 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 God says things are verboten, off-limits, bad, or to use the biblical term, sinful, is because they are they are denials of the image that we were made, the identity that we were given, and this pushes us further and further away from him and 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 more and more into situations that um lead tend to lead more to heartbreak and disappointment and tragedy in life than if we don't and it's the same reason why you know we we tell our children not to touch hot stoves we tell our children to recognize stranger danger we tell our children to look both ways before they cross the street and 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 i think this is this is something i think that and maybe i understand it differently because i didn't get converted until i was 30 years old 
Mm-hmm. And and I grew up full bore in the post-sexual revolution. My mom was 15 when she had me and she wasn't raped. She just had sex with her high school boyfriend and got pregnant and decided not to have an abortion. Okay. Yeah. Um, I grew up fully ensconced in the porn generation and all that. kind. Of, I, I lived in the only co-ed floor at Michigan State University, Wonders Hall at the time. Okay. So I, I went full bore into the sexual revolution just on the other side of the, uh, of, of, of the angle that from you, but, but where I really struggled now is I have this faith conversion because it didn't, it didn't, it didn't make me the father I wanted to be to my kids. It didn't make me the husband I wanted to be to my wife. Uh, didn't really give me any kind of purpose or anything of that nature. And so like you, there has to be something else. And I ended up one day at a Promise Keepers event in Kansas City, Missouri, September 18th, 2003. And that's when I realized, yeah, there is something else. But here's the issue I now have is I now know that I, it wasn't good enough for me to know that that stuff was wrong. I right. needed to know why it was wrong. Right. And so now I know why it is wrong. Now I know that it, because I'm doing these things, that's why I'm not the person that God created me to be because I'm, this is my identity and it's not really who I was made to be, but it's not like those desires. I mean, they're nothing like what they were 15 years ago, but it's not like they are completely gone either. And, and what I find is when I am doing what God has called me to do and serving him, I don't really sit around thinking about what's on Pornhub. Right. Like no one, no one in a mission field in Honduras is thinking, boy, I really miss the gay bar or I really wonder what's trending on Pornhub right now, because you're, you're, you're doing things that are far more impactful to your life and your soul and why you were putting on this earth. It's the time that we're on our own, that we're away from God, that, that we start thinking about where, where we're at with those things. And I think, I think this is the thing that the church has to figure out because it's struggling with either a, we affirm everybody, no matter what they're doing or how destructive it is and yep. lie to them or B, we just put a scarlet letter on them and, and act like they, they somehow have discovered the one sin pattern, regardless of what I'm doing in my secret time that God couldn't possibly redeem. That's really long winded, but I feel some empathy with your plight. So what would, how would you react to that? Well, a couple of things you said, um, number one, you're right. It, this, this particular sin is so tied to identity. And so, it's so wrapped up in identity. And so in the last, you know, 30 years, 40 years, it's become more and more extreme. And that's why we see gay pride parades and not greed pride parades or adultery pride parades or tax collector (laughs) pride parades. Um, So that, that's a big, that's a big issue. I mean, it's a big deal because when, well, you know, as and I was the same way. Like I, I just was like, this is who I am. Like I, you know, I don't, I didn't know if I was born that way or just because Lady Gaga says that, by the way, doesn't mean it's true. But um, <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know if I was born gay or if I, you know, if I, it was hormonal in my mother's womb or if, if it was environmental or kind of a combo platter. But I just felt like I had always, even though I didn't remember, kind of like when I was like four, three, two years old, I just felt like I, I was always gay. Like that's who I was and that was my identity. And so that is a very difficult, it's a very difficult sin to untangle and to unravel. And it it's, t- it's nothing short of the Holy Spirit that has to do that work. Mm-hmm. But also get, you're right about God, you know, God knows what, he kind of knows what he's doing when he created the universe. He, he knew what he was doing when he set up this covenant between a man and a woman in a lifelong commitment of marriage 
and because it, he knew that that was the best way to help human beings flourish. And if you go outside of that covenant, whether it's premarital sex, whether it's adultery, whether it's homosexual, whatever it is, there's always destruction to that. There's always danger, as you said. There's always something. And so what people don't talk about in the media, what like Anderson Cooper doesn't talk about and Ellen doesn't talk about is how dark this world really is. It, it was so dark and for me. And it, it's like there's so much there's so much risk taking. I don't want to get too specific, but there's so much risk. And it's so dangerous. If your identity is a behavior, you have to keep pushing that behavior to affirm your identity. It's a vicious cycle, right? Yeah. And and, and if you're in a covenantal marriage, you know, as T Tim Keller says this, you can be naked spiritually, emotionally, and physically with the other person without ever fear fearing rejection. Mm -hmm. But when you're living outside of that covenantal relationship, uh, by the way, like there's no STDs in a covenantal marriage. By the way, and so that's one thing. Right. <laughs> that, that never ha happens. If you're a faithful person in marriage, like that never can happen. Um, and so it's it's a destructive world, and no one like in all. And again, like all like Katy Perry and all these people who are selling and Taylor Swift who are celebrating this so aggressively, never talk talk about the dark side of it and how. It's just, it, it's, it's pretty dark. And, and I'm not, that's not to say that some people, there are exceptions to that rule, but um, especially in the gay male world, it, it can, it can get very dark. So no one talks about that, but um, yeah, God knew what he was doing when he set up his plan for human sexuality and human flourishing. You've been very generous with your time, and, and we don't want to get you any more fired than we probably already have uh, with this interview. <laughs> I hope we've sold you at least a few books, though, in the process to maybe try to ease, ease some of the pain, because uh, we don't want you to have to write the book. And this is why I took up drinking, and God had to deliver me from that, too, right? That, 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 but but yeah. what, what are you, your final piece of advice for parents, um, fellow believers— if, if if you could if you could have a closed circuit television with the church in America, what would you tell them? Well, two things. I would tell tell them to. I talk about this in my book. I to t I would tell them to have the convictions of this settled in your heart. Homosexual. It's like Gertrude Stein. You know, she said a rose is a rose is a rose, but it's like. A sin is a sin is a sin, and and homosexuality is a sin, and and there's no getting around that. You can do all kinds of hermeneutical gymnastics with the Bible, but it doesn't really work. And so, the church has to have this issue settled. I just heard from a friend today who who just read my book, and he said, you know, thank you so much for your book. I I'm a Christian too, and uh, I heard this is a friend I went to high school with. And he said, thank you so much, because I didn't really know what to tell my kids about this. I didn't know if to tell them it was a sin or not, and, and I wasn't sure. And that's the one thing. One thing is, so the church needs to really understand that this is a sin and have those convictions settled, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did when they were in exile in Babylon. They had their convictions settled, and they didn't bow down to culture. 
to the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. So that's number one. Number two, um, I would just tell, I would, I would ask the church to just love people, love not just the LGBT community, but love everyone. Uh, you know, God says, God tells us uh, to love our neighbor. And Billy Graham famously said, it's God's job to judge. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. And it's our job to love. And that's really what I would tell the church. It's like, you can't change anyone by just keep, you know, continually telling them it's wrong. It's a sin. It's a sin. Um, just love them love people and uh but but that it's so you can't go out in love unless you have that truth settled in your right. heart the order you communicated was very key there the conviction has to be right first right yeah yeah otherwise you're just like all over the place and you, people don't even know what you what, what are you what you're saying this has been a phenomenal conversation. I, I had an inkling it was going to be, which is why I had our booker over here, Todd. The minute I got this email in my inbox, say, I think we need to get this on the air as soon as we possibly could. I had, a, I had an inkling it was going to be as powerful as it turned out to be, and it met all my expectations. It's been an honor, Beckett, to have you with us here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. And uh, uh, may your house increase, my friend. Uh, courageous for you to come forward. Um, and uh, God bless you. Thank you very Thank much. You so I, it was such a pleasure to be on here. Thank you. Get his book, A Change of Affection, please. He, he may need some ancillary income uh, based on this interview. All right. So we, the least we could do is step forward, go over to Amazon and get a copy of this. A Change of Affection, a gay man's incredible story of, of, uh, of redemption from Beckett Cook. God bless you, Beckett. Thanks for joining us. Take care, man. Thank you. Gentlemen, your thoughts on the conversation we just had with Beckett Cook. What do you think? That's a, uh, we were talking about the dude code, but that's a dude. Uh, he gets it, uh, through and through, uh, the, 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 to come out of the cave and, and, and then the willingness, uh, to go back in knowing what the cost may be. I mean, that is, that is discipleship right there. It, it's not unique to him, uh, and the particular sin of being gay. That is, he's doing exactly what all of us are called to do and right in this moment i mean we saw it with our eyes wide open that you know today may be uh as every bit as dynamic and testing a day as uh you know 10 years ago uh when i was transferred i don't know what's going to happen but I'm, I'm going forward nonetheless i mean how how many christians in this world don't come close to this on issues of far less gravity when there's far less uh to risk and we don't do it I, i'm just amazed and uh listen as as the catholic on the panel uh always frustrating to me um uh, the, the guy grew up catholic it, it, this applies to other churches as well but it, it, this is again why it's so important for the church to follow his rule number one be convicted in your heart about what you believe unambiguously unashamedly that's not a complicated uh biblical premise but it's one we ignore all the time aaron what do you think yeah this i, I think the, the most powerful part of this conversation aside from the actual conversion uh story which was extremely powerful but was the dialogue on identity and at the end of the day i i firmly believe this is true whether it's um, the, the sin of uh, acting out on, on same-sex desires or greed or uh, fill-in-the-blank sin. 
the, the sin that ensnares us really is our identity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what sin it is. Now, with this one, it is different um, in the sense that, um, as, as Beckett pointed out, we don't have a greed uh, pride month. We don't have a, uh, as he said, tax collector month. We don't have all of those other months as well. So that's the only way, at least in this culture, that it's different. But at a spiritual level, it, it, really, it really isn't. Any, any sin that we give into, again, pushing us further away from the identity uh, or from, from, uh, from a right relationship with our God, it is our identity. And that's something, again, that we, I think we have to understand. And in a macro sense as well, when we start hyphenating Christianity, I am a this Christian, I am a, uh, I'm a white Christian, I'm a, a female Christian, I'm a, I'm a black Christian, I'm a uh, gay Christian. No, we are putting our identity in something else other than right. our Savior. Right. And the way Beckett chose his words uh, over and over again in that conversation underscores this very crucial point. And so that, that is, I think, the most powerful part, port, uh, portion of the conversation. I think that applies to every single one of us, because when we, when we, when we, um, when we come to Jesus, when we, when we uh, have salvation, we are putting off the old identity and putting on the new. Why would we ever return to that? Again, that's, and then we all, we all have our temptations, but it's something I think that's incredibly challenging for each of us to, uh, to grapple with and reconcile, and it should be challenging to us um, in our everyday, in our everyday walk. Can I bring up one more thing? It's remarkable uh, how we need to be very honest about but what being rescued from sin, what looks to be a baseline, the same sin for a lot of people, the rescue does not always look the same. Right. He's not married with four children. Yeah. Okay. Right. That that so oftentimes we get very formulaic and we, we yep, think sure. salvation yep. is supposed yeah, to look got, like it's the Christian movie that has to have the cheesy conversion yes. scene at the end. Right. Yeah, yeah. What you what you what you listen to in real time is a man working out his salvation with in fear and trembling yes. in real time. Yeah, you 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 watched a man's sanctification process take place in real time, and the story isn't over yet. And, and he's honest with you. I mean, I lived this identity. I know it is wrong. I know my identity in, is in Christ. That doesn't mean the, the, the temptations and desires just all go away, right? Oh, you're, still, you're as big a target as ever for the it, Dark it, Lord. It, it, no question about that. And I think, I think the identity thing is the big thing to understand here. Because along the lines of what Aaron was talking about, the reason why we, the identity thing is, is what really embeds the sin, uh, any sin into our conscience when we use it as our identity, meaning it's not something we're ashamed of anymore. It's, it's not something that we know we don't fashion a, a fig leaf to cover anymore. It means it's, we let it out from the, from the, the red light district of our minds. We don't share with other people or, you know, we, 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 we let it out, you know, we, we take pride, so to speak in it. The reason why that is difficult is because wired within us is this desire to be unconditionally loved. It's wired within all of us because that's the way we were made by a being who is love within his own nature. He's love incarnate, except God is love. Love is not God. God determines what love is and what love means. It's his characteristic that he passed on to us. We, we as the progeny don't tell him who he is. 
or we are, he tells us. And so, we, but we still, we have this innate desire within us to be unconditionally loved. And so when we decide that we're, the sin is embedded in us to the point that it will now be our identity, and someone comes along and says, that's a sin, what we're, te- what we're saying is, you are, you are not, you, though or that person receives this as, well, that means I'm not unconditionally loved. So if, I, if God doesn't unconditionally love me, then either God is wrong and has to change, or God, as, he, as, as, as Bennett pointed out, I'm just a functional atheist. God just doesn't exist because we don't want to be um, rejected by God. But, but this is the lie. You were, he, you were never unconditionally loved, not unconditionally loved. You are conflating affirmation with unconditional love. You're conflating approval with unconditional love. Heaven forbid, if I were to go home tonight and find out one of my children did something just heinously, it man's inhumanity to man. I wouldn't stand in the way of their criminal prosecution one iota. I wouldn't stop loving them unconditionally either. But I, but I wouldn't approve of that action. I wouldn't affirm that action. I wouldn't change my mind that, you know, assault and battery is good now because my kid did it. Murder is good now because my kid did it. Armed robbery is good now because my kid did it. No, we, we, unconditional love is, to, is not to be conflated with unconditional approval or affirmation. Those are not the same things. But when we, when we decide that the sin is our identity, we, we can't help but conflate the two things. And this is the danger of quote-unquote pride. What, what pride is really saying is make the sin your identity. Don't struggle with it. Don't, 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 even, don't feel bad after you cave into it. Embrace it whole. It's who you are. And then once it becomes the identity, then that's when we start conflating unconditional love with unconditional approval and affirmation. And this is why the order that Bennett gave us is so important. Number one, the convictions of, your, of, of, of the truth do not, make sure you are confident in those things first, number one. And then number two, go out in love. Because if we don't have the confidence of our own convictions, what kind of, we don't know how to model love. We're sinners. Our notions of love if they're to be sincere, have to come from the, uh, our maker, who is love incarnate. That order is so important. And, and that's what makes this different. No one, there is, no one is being told that they can't get accredited as a psychiatrist unless they say adultery is great. No one is being told, you know, the state may have to take your kids away unless you teach them at a very young age that they should cheat on their spouses. No one's being told that. But in this particular sin, they are being told that. Because the, and this is embedding the identity. That's what you have to, that's what we have to break through as a church, is the identity. This also is why we strenuously object here at, and within the conservative civic realm into affirming people as conservative blank when, in their sinful identities or their mental illnesses. We're not helping them. In fact, I'm kind of appalled we're actually using them the way Democrats use them. They're mascots. They're not real people. That they're not people that are worthy of the truth, worthy of 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 of, of wholeness, worthy of redemption. We just want a political mascot so we can score some points with our cliques and win an election. 
Isn't that what Democrats do to these various demographics? Isn't, isn't, that, isn't, isn't that what the left does? You're only the skin color. You're only your behavior. You're only whatever genitalia you have. You're nothing more than those things. Why would we emulate that? It's dehumanizing. Why would we emulate that? That's why secular conservatism has no shot up against this. None. Because that's what secular conservatism will do. Secular conservatism will be Kellyanne Conway bragging on television. And I know her, so I know how serious she takes I know how serious she takes her faith. But she'll go on television and brag that Trump's the first president to ever openly be a campaign on being approving of gay marriage. That has no chance. No chance up against the spirit of the age that you were up against. None. You're not going to beat live with Memorex. You're not going to do it. You're not going to beat taste great with less filling. And you're, you're certainly not going to beat the real thing. A hundred percent proof certified authentic with a facsimile. You need the truth. That's why we're never promoting someone as an activist on our side by affirming their identity, their sin is their identity or their mental illness is their identity. And we're always going to oppose that. Why? Because that's the playbook of the very team we're trying to defeat out there on the, on the feet, on the arena of ideas. Why would we adopt? Why would we knowingly adopt the rules that lets them score more touchdowns? Why would we do that? There aren't, there's several good answers to this and none of them are good. Bennett Cook is a living, breathing example as to why we've always done this show a lot different or a little different than a lot of other people have. We're not, we're not interested in participating in helping Bennett Cook to become the next conservative gay activist who keynotes at CPAC. We're interested in, in helping people like Bennett Cook find out what was the reason they were put on this earth. What's the purpose for why they're here? Because when, 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 when they have the truth of those convictions, then they're going to realize, you know, there's a lot of things out here that are worthy of conserving for this and future generations. You know what she sits there? Get, when you get rid of the jovial persona, you mentioned that's a dude. Dude's got some balls. He's out there putting his career, his livelihood, no all kidding. of his relationships, everything on the line yep. so that someone, maybe one other person, can escape the darkness that he escaped. One other person can be ushered into the light that he now walks in. Guys like Beckett, and I don't mean to interrupt, guys like Beckett, set designers, uh, fashion designers, I mean, guys like Beckett make a lot of money. Why, why would you give this up if you didn't have, if you didn't have real conviction? I think that's what you're trying to understand. That's right. I mean, what you, what you saw is a guy with you watching and listening set aside what the world says matters the most and instead grab hold to what Jesus called the pearl of great price. That's, that's what you saw. That, that's what you saw happen right here before you. And it's stories like his that we want to provide a platform to amplify rather than helping the left do its job and just slapping a conservative label on it. More in a moment.
Hey, if you're trying to get healthier uh, and, uh, and, and lose that weight, then you know willpower will only take you so far. And man, it, wouldn't it be great if there was like a stop, a stop signal, uh, a stoplight in our, in, our, in our tummies that told us when we're full, when we can stop eating and helped us regulate cravings and portion controls. You know what there, there actually is. It's got a long name, but its abbreviation is three simple letters, OEA. And it's got one job. Man, it's it's one job is to send a signal from the gut to the brain to let it know upstairs, uh, hey, kick that metabolism in, we're done, shut her down, we're full. For various reasons, that would be too long for us to discuss in a 60-second live read, though. For too many of us, that OEA just isn't doing the job we need it to do. And that's where Riduzone comes in. All it wants to do is put the is put the OEA back in your body. When you turn over the label, you look at the ingredients, you're going to see, well, it doesn't have 15 ingredients. In fact, it has like three, and OEA is like the overwhelmingly main ingredient. There aren't a bunch of chemicals, caffeine, stimulants this is just about putting that oea back in your body to help you regulate your cravings and portion control if you want to give it a shot it could very well be what what's been missing in the battle against your bulge okay riduzone.com is the website r-i-d-u-z-o-n-e riduzone.com if you use the promo code steve when you go there they'll give you a special offer at riduzone.com and now it's time for our weekly edition of three non-political questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Because we need a little levity from the demise and decline of Western civilization. Three questions, um, vapid, vapid, whatever it is. Actually, uh, it was a full moon last night, right? Or maybe was it was it? just a yeah, full moon, uh, and then I sacrificed a goat two weeks ago, so it's vapid today. I always got to. Vapid questions. Three non-political and vapid questions. First question is, what song best summarizes your life right now? What song best? Could be any song. Any song. Um, you know what? I just had a song pop into my head, and I have not heard this song in years. So you know, whenever you ask me these things, I just go with whatever pops into my head first is is what I think I'm supposed to answer. All right. This is going to be really uh, uh, out there. Is oblique the word for you know like? Unique, out there. Is that the word I'm thinking of? Oblique. Obtuse. Obtuse. Thank Obtuse, you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oblique's a muscle. Yeah, that's right. Um, remember Matthew Wilder's Break My Stride from like 1983? <laughs> Didn't see that coming, kids. <laughs> I told you you weren't going to see it coming. I don't know Never why. Slow Can you sing me it? Down, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, no. no. Yeah. I'm, I, I, that's, I just, I'm going to go with that one. That popped into my head right after you answered the question. So I'm going to go with that, and I'm going to say, you know, I've got, uh, I've got two and a half teenagers right now. Um, uh, my wife is recuperating uh, from from a surgery. It's nothing serious. I mean, well, surgery is serious. It's not like life threatening. It's just something we have been putting off that needed to finally get done. Um, you know, there's always professional frustration when you come to work every day, dealing with, uh, and you're 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 caught between two dueling cults. 
that are both exasperating and exhausting on a given day, right? We're in the dog days of summer where football season can't get here soon enough. So, you know what? I'm, but, you know, I'm going to finish the race, man. Ain't nothing going to break my stride. I'm here. You know, we're, gonna, we're, we're still fighting. We're still in the arena. We're still battling. So I'm going with that right now. Hey, that's pretty good. You like that? Yeah, that was really good for popping into your head. Yeah, every now and then. Every now and then I show why I've earned a living doing this. Just only every, every now and then. Man, nothing is popping into my head. <laughs> nothing. Got, I got nothing. Holy cow. Aaron, tell us about your solo yesterday, because that's some dude stuff while I think of a song. Oh, I soloed for the first time yesterday evening while the debate was going on, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I flew an airplane, took it off, and landed it three times Just without that. anybody else wow. uh, in, the, uh, in the plane. I forgot to leave you your request, Steve, which was a list of potential names to... Uh, replace me should something happen. Yes, I f- totally forgot to do that. I didn't know Can I was going to be. Please do that in the future, please. Yeah. I'm, I, I, uh, yeah, I didn't know I was going to be selling last night in my defense, but it was just fine. I wasn't even nervous at all. I, I honestly wasn't. I was just like ready to do this, and I, I mean, not to brag, but I was just kind of a boss. I, I was just going to say that's total boss, man. Yeah. You should have let me say it for you. It would have been better than calling it on yourself. But, eh. but I agree. That's that's a total boss move, no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I don't have I don't have the stones to do it. A song Why just out? popped into my head. Okay. It, and it, uh, talking to guys like Beckett, uh, uh, Piano Man by Billy Joel. You, uh, trying to, like, we're lucky to have uh, this job at the level that we have it, but um, it often, t- trying to, you know, when you write, when you're saying something, you tr- it's when Billy Joel is describing the, the cast of character he's talking to and communicating mm-hmm. with them and what they're thinking and where they um, it, it does often feel like you're just, you're, you can't see ex- where it goes beyond this moment. Uh, you know, gets me my drinks for free. Quick with a joke, it'll light up your smoke. But there's some place that he'd rather be. Just, you don't, you, you really have to have a level of faith. Wait, if you care for anything beyond the clicks, that just that moment that doesn't seem to connect to anything the, the truth can set it free. So I, that seems a pretty chaotic song choice, but I went with your lead on... It went well. Okay. It popped I'm, into my I head. Was, I'm pleasantly surprised with both of your answers. So I'm about to bring the mood down. Of uh, course. That's, that, the cats. that's your spiritual gift. Question number two. Which four superhero slash science fiction movies or TV shows should have been on your science fiction Mount, Rush, Mount Rushmore but are not? Wait, what? I don't get the... Which four so, should have been? So this is basically the Mount Rushmore of either shame or close but no cigar for science so fiction movies. So honorable mention. Basically, yeah. Did, did I, I'm trying to remember what I had on my original. Or, or ones that should have been good but were terrible, like various Star I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with the ones that should have been good but were terrible because the disappointments will be much easier. Yeah, we, we just did this. So what did we do? This, um, it, it, I would have Justice League as number one. Yeah. The single most disappointing cinematic... Um, uh, experience of, of my now 46 years on this earth. And for little Stevie, who used to get up, man, 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning in his Super Friends under ruse back in, you know, 1978 to watch Challenge of the Super Friends. Uh, I've been, uh, I've been waiting for a good long time for, for this to be done, shall I say. Justice, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's just, uh... I couldn't think of anything else to say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was so angry walking out of that theater. Noah was like, so what'd you think? 
Then he looked up, saw the look on his old man's face, and he didn't say a word the whole ride home because he knew. He knew. Someone's, someone had to die tonight. He's like, I'm not, I'm not jumping in the middle of that one. I didn't make the movie. It's not my fault. Well, I thought the Flash would... You be quiet. That's right. That's right. What do you know? <laughs> yes. So Justice League would be there, number one. Uh, in terms of uh, most disappointing experiences. You know, the thing about Green Lantern is... I, I, when Maybe it's because Noah was only... Um, when did that come out? 2011? Yeah. So Noah was only four when we went and saw that movie. And man, he was all decked out in his Green Lantern gear. He had this like Green Lantern ring on. And when Ryan Reynolds, you know, gives the Green Lantern mantra at the end, you know, and, 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 uh, um, in brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power, Green Lantern's light. When, he'll, when, when he gets that last part, Noah, who just sat totally still and transfixed by the screen the whole movie, jumps up, little Noah does in the aisle, points his ring into the air and says, <laughs> Green Lantern's light! All right, and the That's whole awesome. theater just erupted, man. And I will never forget that the rest of my life. One of the coolest dad moments I've ever had. And so maybe I, I just don't, I can't see that movie objectively because I had that moment. But I don't remember walking out of there thinking this is just going to, this franchise is never, it's done, it's toast, it's never going to happen. I remember thinking it could have been done better. But I don't remember walking, and I've watched it a couple of times since. And I'm like, yeah, this isn't, you know, it, it, this isn't the Dark Knight, guys, but it's not Howard the Duck either. I don't, so I've never understood why that is as panned, but maybe I, I can't see it objectively. But, um, Justice League is is number one by a bullet. Star Trek Nemesis is number two. How you how you make a crap movie with the Romulans is beyond as it is just beyond me. Uh, and and then I put Star Trek Generations number three. For many years, that was my number one most disappointing cinematic experience. I mean, Kirk and Picard together, dude. I was so hype, and yeah, that that movie is a nothing burger. So that those. Off the top of my head, those would be my top three. Off the top of my head, it's pretty I, good. I would put uh, Peter Jackson's The Hobbit on there. Oh yeah, that that yeah. that should have been way better. Um, I mean, what the guy gave us the Lord of the Rings, so I'll give him whatever he wanted to do and tried to do, but that should have been better. And then the other three spots are for uh, the uh, Last Jedi, the Last Jedi, and the Last Jedi. <laughs> I'm getting I'm angrier. Spare the audience that argument. They've heard two angrier. years of it. Well, now we got <laughs> red stormtroopers and apparently multiple Death Stars rumors. Are, I, can, what are you guys doing? If this is all true, is that J.J. Abrams? What happened to you? What? Oh my goodness! How? Next thing you know, Ray is going to find a hatch out in the middle of this. Yes, uh, I know. Yes. Island. Oh, nice. You know, you know what? This is how they resurrect Palpatine. 8, 16, yeah, 24. 24. <laughs> 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, yeah. 42. Yes. Just, um, Kylo Ren chants that to resurrect Palpatine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's when, and that's Todd just literally just <laughs> switch and like an electric oh, chair goes off somewhere in suburban I, Montana. I have fully committed that I will be in walkout mode when I go to the movie theater. Yeah. And, and who's with me? We're doing that. Poe at some sort uh, at some point says, "See you in another life, brother." Um, for me, it's going to be um, 
It's going to be, well, it is The Last Jedi. It should have been good. The way, I mean, I've never disputed that the filmmaking is just top notch, but the story just ruined it for me. Uh, it should have been great. The, uh, I, I think agree. it's so funny that I think it's a great movie. I, I oh well, it's well made. And, and I, agree I think with it's you on hilarious. It and, and and normally I am the first person to hate every film for all the reasons you guys hate the Last Jedi. Right. But I just had a totally different read on you it. You and I okay. have disagreed, argued. Yep. The, the most awkward moment in our life together is when we got. I, I happened to go to the theater. With yeah, you, you went I, with no one. So what you yes. think? I thought it was great, and I'm like, holy crap! <laughs> what am I gonna say? I'm just. Do I quit now? Do we just stop this? I remember. That. Yes. It's like, oh, then I would agree with Todd on the Hobbit as well. Uh, that should have been great, um, but it was not, obviously. And why would you? Why would you split it up into into three into three movies? Money. That's the problem. Um, yeah. If, if they would have just made two movies one or two, yeah, they could have done a really good job. A lot. It's the it's yeah. the three movies thing that ruined it. Yeah, yep. And then I can't remember. And this is probably why I, Iron Man two or Iron Man three. I just it. I Iron those, Man three. I Iron almost 3. put on I, the list, but I'm having a good I day. Think, yeah, I think it was Iron Man. 3 I freaking I just, hate Iron yeah. Man three with the, the way you hate the Last Jedi. I I hate it. Everything about it. Yep. hate it yep. but i just didn't have like the built-in expectations for it like i had for the other movies but in terms of a genre movie that didn't disappoint me but i walked out of there hating it and the horse it rode it on and the night of its of their conception everything about it iron man 3 i hate with the, I, I hate 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 yeah and then um i th- i don't I, it's just this one movie or this one tv show again daredevil it's such a great superhero, but the uh, it's just I have some qualms that we're not going to get into right now. Well, I love about that show. That, about that uh, show, I love the show. Yeah, it's wow. it should have been it should have been great, but it's not for me anyway. Wow. All right, final okay. question: If you could trade places with anybody in the world, non political, who would it be? Trade places with anybody in the world, but it's not political. Okay. Um. Uh. Patrick Mahomes would be mine. Whoever is currently heading up the the DC Universe division at Warner Brothers, I'm taking that job. Yeah, I'm, I'm trading places with them. I got, uh, and uh, I've, I've I've got uh, some. And what was it that uh, Kirsten Gillibrand said last night? When she's president, the first thing she's going to do is Clorox the Oval yeah. Office. So the first thing a woman president is going to do is clean. Yeah, right? that was great. Yeah, I mean, but but I would walk in there. I'm like, we got some cleaning, some house cleaning to do here, folks. We're gonna set this on the proper path here. All right. So that's I would trade places with whoever is currently overseeing the DC Universe division at Warner Brothers with that person. It's funny these are related to the. I'd say I would replace J.J. Abrams right now because this is unacceptable. Well, you you really want to replace Kathleen Kennedy Townsend because okay, she's well, she's really the the person overseeing all of that. You want to replace her? Yeah. Oh, fine. Okay. Somebody needs replacing, and I'm the man for the job. Okay. Todd, uh, who would you trade? I have to think those Red with? Sith stormtroopers are sweet, but okay. That's it. That's the, the whoever's running Star oh, Wars oh, into the gotcha. ground. Yeah, he yeah. wants to replace Kathleen yeah. Kennedy Townsend. Um, Patrick Mahomes now has a cereal, like his own cereal. It's called Mahomes Magic Crunch. Really? And um, yeah, Hy-Vee. Hy-Vee is actually making it for him. And, uh, you know, I just, I kind of hate him, but I love him at the same time because he's just like, he's good at everything and I hate him for that. 
But uh, but yeah, if there's one pr- person I could tra- trade uh, trade places with, it would be it would be Patrick Mahomes. All right, we'll get some final thoughts from you guys here in a minute. But first, if you watched a recent episode of 60 Minutes, the uh, former head of the FBI Cyber Crimes Unit was on there warning about what we've been warning you about on this show for many moons now. And that is the latest crime wave sweeping the nation. It's called home title fraud. And the reason why, number one, most people's most valuable investment as Americans will be their own home at some point in their lifetimes, which then leads to point number two. A lot of uh, our mortgage uh, notes and our home titles are kept online in databases which, hey, that's great. It makes it more, um, you know, uh, accessible for us. Also, though, makes it more accessible for scammers and vulnerable to them as well. What they do is they hack into these databases, uh, find out uh, what your information is, sign their name onto your paperwork, and then they liquidate your equity using your home as collateral. And you usually won't even find out until those late payment notices start showing up or even a foreclosure notice in the mail. Your mortgage uh, lender can't protect you. Your bank can't. Not even your identity theft protection will. But for just pennies a day, our friends at home, Title Lock, can. They'll put a virtual barrier around your home's title if they detect any anything nefarious whatsoever. They're on it to protect your home, your most valuable investment. And right now you can find out for free if your home's title has already been targeted or tampered with. Just go to the website, hometitlelock.com and ask for that free title scan and report at hometitlelock.com. That's hometitlelock.com. Gentlemen, some final thoughts. Todd, you can go first. Uh, our guest, uh, not Bennett or Beckett? Uh, it's Beckett. It's Beckett, Beckett Cook. Yeah. Uh, you, let's he's a good model a really good model for approaching the politics leading up to the next election just be not afraid use be faithful this is just unambiguously faithful uh to god and his plan and then Go forward, as Steve said, the second part is basically with as much grace as possible. Steve, you fleshed this out before. There's going to be a lot of people we agree with on a lot of things that disagree with us, vice versa, the people we disagree with us. An example right now is like a a candidate like Tulsi Gabbard. She comes to the top of my mind, but, you know, fighting uh, Google and she supports religious freedom. And then there's other things where she's off the reservation. But I would just try to use him as a model because look where it leads. It looks to a level of courage that is just wanting in this world, and we need more of it. Mm. I, I really, as I think our whole audience did, enjoy the story of of Beckett Cook. But the hero of that story, I think it's worth reminding. It's not Beckett. He's not your hero. It's the story of what God did through him mm-hmm. and is doing through him. I think it's always worth reminding ourselves of that. When we hear these powerful testimonies, Beckett's not the hero. Beckett is not the, uh, the guy who changed his own life. God intervened in his life in a powerful way. He's the, the, he is the hero and always will be. Very well said. We're going to stick around, do a little overtime for our Blaze TV subscribers. Uh, for the rest of you, we'll see you tomorrow, noon to 2 Eastern, right after Glenn Beck. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.